Quite a few weeks ago, we started looking at 1 Thessalonians. Then we cancelled one Sunday night due to snow. Then we had Easter. Then I was away on holiday. So you've probably forgotten that we ever did start it. But you can take my word for it. Once upon a time, we did look at chapter 1. And we said that along with 2 Thessalonians, this letter is for end-time people. It's for God's people living in the period between Christ's resurrection and his return to earth. It's about being people who think and live as people who are ready for his return. People who are ready for his return all the time. Paul keeps coming back to that in these two letters. And this evening, the passage we're going to look at, in this passage, Paul shows us what it means to be a servant of God as we wait for Christ's return. In the passage we're going to look at, Paul gives us a portrait of the genuine servant. He gives us this portrait by reviewing his own ministry among the Thessalonians. So as you can see, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And I'm not sure what page that is in the church Bible. But I'll begin at verse 1. Paul says, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed, God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from man, nor from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship, how we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles 
so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is God's word. This passage shows us that the genuine servant is motivated by a desire to please God, not people. Also, the genuine servant shows a parental kind of love. And the genuine servant sees the big picture and is always able to thank God. And this portrait is a model for us. It's not just a model for apostles or church leaders. We're all called to service. And so this is for all of us. First of all, Paul says, the genuine servant is motivated by a desire to please God, not people. Paul starts by reminding the Thessalonians that when he first arrived with them, he did not arrive in triumph. He came from Philippi, and when he was there, he had been severely flogged, thrown into prison, and he had his feet fastened in the stocks. We're told all of that in the book of Acts. In sports terms, we'd say Paul arrived in Thessalonica on the back of a bad defeat. And he didn't get a cozy welcome in Thessalonica either. In verse 2, he says he came up against strong opposition there. Yet he says, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel, in spite of that strong opposition. How was Paul able to do that? Well, we might say, well, it was because God helped him. It says it right there. That's true, but God's help is always available to his people. So what is it that made Paul go on in reliance on God's help? After all, there are plenty of Christians who could have God's help in their service, but they give up and don't make use of his help. We know the strength came from God, but what motivated Paul to seek God's strength? It was his desire to please God. We see that in the second half of verse 4. We are not trying to please man, but God. Maybe that sounds so obvious that it's not even worth mentioning. Of course we serve God to please God. But is it really that obvious? In reality, our service can be motivated by plenty of other things. Steve pointed this out to us this morning. And here Paul shows that our service can be motivated by a desire to please other people. We can serve God because we want to be well thought of by God's people. We want their approval and their praise. The world out there is a big place. It can be a very cold place. But in the church family, there's warmth. If we're hungry for approval and praise, there's usually plenty of it on offer in the church. And that's a good thing. God can use that to encourage us, and he does use it that way. But if we're not careful, our service in the church can end up being a way to get strokes for ourselves. 
A way to build up our own ego. In verse 5, Paul mentions another possible motivation. Greed. There's financial greed and there's also greed for power and position. The history of the church is littered with men and women whose service has been motivated by greed. And this motivation is alive and well today too. And the poor, unnoticed servant of God can be motivated by greed just as much as the rich, well-known servant of God. The only difference is one has been successful in pursuing their greed and the other one hasn't. But here's the thing about service that's motivated by greed or by a desire to please people or by any other impure motive. That kind of service will not continue in the face of strong opposition. It won't continue in the midst of suffering. When there are no ego strokes on offer, when there's no money to be made, and no power to be gained, when those rewards aren't available, then service service that's motivated by those things, it's going to come to an abrupt end. These missionaries that have been in Albania for 20 years, if their service had been motivated by those things, they wouldn't have been there for 20 years. Look again how Paul describes his own motivation. In the second half of verse 4, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul dragged his battered body from Philippi to Thessalonica and he dared to share the gospel there because he understood the honor of being approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul is genuinely amazed and humbled that God entrusted him with the treasure of the gospel. Paul used to be God's enemy. But now he has the honor of being called to serve God. And so his motivation is to please God. And with that motivation, nothing is going to make Paul quit his service for God. He's not doing it for an ego boost or to be well thought of by people or to make money or to gain power. And so he will keep serving God even when none of those things are on offer. That's not what he's after. And we can turn this round on ourselves. I can ask myself, when I'm preparing a sermon or when I'm sitting down to talk with one of you, what's my motivation? Why am I doing it? And when you bring the flowers or when you play the music or open up the building or when you help to plan some event or volunteer to help with something, why are you doing it? Really? 
I would guess if we really examine ourselves, what we would discover is that to some degree we all have mixed motives. Along with our genuine wonder at the privilege of serving God, we all have some impurities mixed in. But the more impurities, the quicker we're going to give up on our service. So let's ask God, each one of us, to purify our motives. And then we will dare to keep serving him, no matter how difficult the circumstances are. Well, Paul has started out here by saying that he doesn't care about pleasing people. So we might ask, does that mean he doesn't care about people? Not at all. In fact, out of everything that Paul wrote, the next verses give us the warmest picture of his care for people. And it turns out that because Paul isn't trying to please people, he's able to love them much more effectively. These next verses show us that the genuine servant shows a parental kind of love. In these verses, Paul, first of all, compares himself to a mother and then to a father. Look, first of all, at the mother comparison in the second half of verse 6. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you'd become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. The genuine servant's love shows itself in sacrificial life sharing. In verse 6, Paul says, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. I don't think Paul is talking here about being a financial burden. He gets to that down in verse 9. Here in verse 6, I think his point is, we could have insisted on our importance and position when we were among you. Paul could have played the big man. We know from the book of Acts, God has been using Paul very powerfully. And Paul could have come and milked his reputation a bit. But he says in verse 7, we were gentle among you. The new NIV says, like little children among you. It's hard to decide which is the right choice for translation. The difference between the two comes down to just one letter in Greek. But whichever the translation is of that phrase, the point is exactly the same. Instead of arriving and asserting himself as the big man... Paul came to serve. And he served the way a mother cares for her little children. A mother with little children knows that there aren't going to be any trumpet fanfares when she walks down the stairs in the morning. She knows that the nappy changing and the sick mopping and the blood wiping and the laundry and cooking that she does That work is unlikely to be greeted with applause very often. In fact, as soon as she's finished all of that work, 
usually her reward is to get to do it all over again. With very little thanks. But that's why we call it a labor of love. It's sacrificial. And even when there is applause or kisses in return for what she does, those things can never truly pay for what a mother does. Her service for her little children is a labor of love. That's what genuine service is like. And Paul moves from that illustration to show then what that meant in his own ministry. For him, it wasn't changing nappies and wiping noses. His labor of love was that he didn't come to Thessalonica as the big name speaker. He didn't come and have the church running to meet his needs. He didn't just walk onto the platform every evening and then disappear until the next evening. No, he says in verse 8, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago when Neville spoke, and he mentioned the particular approach to ministry that he had been taught as a young man. The approach that says the pastor is the professional who keeps himself aloof from his flock. And you may remember Neville mentioned how unhelpful that had been for him personally. And here Paul shows that when there is genuine love for the flock, the pastor will not be able to keep himself aloof. He will share his life. Now it's true that depending on our personality, some of us will do this more clumsily and some more helpfully than others. But the pastor who loves his flock will not hold himself aloof. And neither will the church member who loves their church family. Remember, Paul is not talking to church leaders here. What he says has application to church leaders, it does. But he's talking to the church family. His own example of sacrificial life sharing is to be the model for every member of the church family. None of us are to hold ourselves aloof. And that means that a trip to this building shouldn't be like a trip to the cinema. If you do nothing but stare at the front and laugh at the jokes, if there ever are any jokes, and then go home, if that's your church experience, then you haven't had a genuine church experience. You've had a sanctified cinema experience. Church is about sharing our lives together. And as our society becomes increasingly fractured today, as less and less families are functioning as families, as more and more people have nothing but a screen to share their lives with, in that context, genuine Christian community, I believe, is going to be an increasingly attractive thing for people. Whenever we enter into sacrificial life sharing, 
We're not only breathing the air of the first century church, as someone has put it. We're not only following their example. We're also showing the world around us that the gospel is more than just words. The gospel produces a loving, caring community. And Paul explains more about what it means to participate in this community. It involves love that shows itself in encouragement through word and example. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Having compared himself to a mother, now Paul compares himself to a father. And he starts by pointing to the example of his own life. Paul never hesitates to say to believers, watch my life. Look and see if it backs up my message. Maybe you and I find it very hard to say that. But Paul says it a lot. And he doesn't say it because he thinks he has arrived as a Christian. Not at all. Elsewhere he calls himself the worst of sinners. He's very clear that he has not already been made perfect. But Paul understood that our life can make or break our witness for Christ. So Paul took his life seriously. He didn't try to fake holiness. But he did pursue holiness. He pursued it like an athlete pursues fitness and excellence in their sport. Holiness was a goal that Paul was always straining towards in his life. He never claimed to have attained perfection, but he always strained towards it. And in this case, he's able to point back to his time in Thessalonica and say to these believers, you saw the example that my co-workers and I set for you. By our lives, we gave you a good example to follow. And isn't that another aspect of a parental kind of love? True parental love does not tell children, do as I say, not as I do. True parental love says, I'm telling you how important it is to obey. Now let me show you obedience in my own life. We encourage others on when we set an example for them to follow. None of us are going to get it right all the time. But if we're willing to hold our hand up when we get it wrong if we're willing to ask forgiveness when we get it wrong, isn't that equally part of setting an example? In fact, we saw some time ago in the book of Acts, a time when Paul lost his temper with the high priest. But then, Paul quoted scripture against himself. He had been wrong. And he publicly admitted he had been wrong. 
The genuine servant will be intentional about setting an example with his or her life. But it will never be for the good of their own reputation. When our focus is on our own reputation in the church, then we will fake holiness. And we will defend and excuse our failures. But when our focus is genuinely on setting an example for others, then we will pursue holiness like an athlete. And we will also set an example of how to repent and resubmit ourselves to Scripture whenever we fail. Paul did both. And he tells us that alongside his encouragement by example, he also encouraged with his words. Verse 11, he encouraged, comforted, and urged these believers. Depending on the person and the situation, Paul's words of encouragement could be the equivalent of a gentle arm around the shoulder or a firm kick up the backside, or something in between. And isn't that a parental kind of love? We don't try and use the same approach with every child in every situation. We try and discern the right kind of encouragement to give. It's easy for us to give the kind of encouragement that we feel most comfortable giving. For some of, us that, some of us, that will be comfort. For some of us, it will be exhortation. But love will motivate us to ask the question to ourselves and to God, what encouragement does this person need in this situation? And look what Paul is encouraging these believers towards in verse 12. He wants to see them living lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, a life worthy of God does not mean a life worthy of God's acceptance. We can never earn his acceptance. A life worthy of God means a life reflecting the character of the God we belong to. In Christ, He has accepted us. He has marked us as his own. He has put his name on us. And we are to live a life that honors the name that's on us. In verse 12, Paul mentions God's kingdom. The New Testament speaks of the kingdom of God in two ways. We're told it has come and it is coming. In one sense, the kingdom came with Jesus' first arrival on earth. Ever since then, men and women have been coming under God's rule. But that kingdom will fully come when Christ returns to earth. Then all of heaven and earth will be seen to be under his rule. And that second sense of the kingdom seems to be what Paul is talking about here. He's talking to end-time people who are looking forward to God's future kingdom and glory. And so he calls them to live lives now that increasingly reflect the lives they will be living then. 
Later we're going to sing a song that says, we belong to the day, to the day that is to come. We belong to the day. Let us journey in the light. If we are truly on our way to an eternity in the light, then the light will already be attractive to us today. We will be seeking to live in the light today. And by our words and example, we will encourage others to be doing the same. The genuine servant is motivated by a desire to please God, not people. The genuine servant shows a parental kind of love. And finally, the genuine servant sees the big picture and is always able to thank God. Seeing the big picture means we understand that when things work, it's because God is at work. And so when things work, we give thanks to God, not ourselves. Look at verse 13. And so we also, and we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. This is picking up on Paul's main point from chapter 1. There he says that when he saw the Thessalonians responding to the gospel, and when he now sees their lives full of faith, love, and hope, when he sees all of that, he thanks God because he knows it's God's work. No matter how much success we might see, in our area of ministry and service, if we are genuine servants of God, we will never forget that the glory belongs to God. But seeing the big picture helps us in another way. It helps us understand that when things don't seem to be working, God is still at work. Sometimes we might forget to praise God when things work. But it's easy for us to see he deserves praise in those situations. What is harder for us is seeing that he still deserves praise even when everything seems to be going wrong. Paul began this section, verses 13 to 16, by saying we thank God continually. And verses 14 to 16 fall under that heading just as much as verse 13 does. In these final verses, Paul recalls the suffering of the Thessalonians and he reminds them that the churches in and around Jerusalem suffered too. Verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen The same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Paul's point here is that suffering is the normal context for our service to God. 
When he says the Thessalonians became imitators of the churches in Judea, he doesn't mean they intentionally imitated those churches. No, he's reassuring them that their experience of suffering was not unusual. The fact that they suffered wasn't a sign something was wrong with them or that they were doing things wrong. In fact, suffering is the normal experience of the church. It's the normal context for our service. Sometimes we think, if I can just get past this difficulty in my life, or if God would just take this difficulty away, then I could get on with loving him and obeying him and serving him. But we're called to love him and obey him and serve him in the difficulty. That's true for us as individuals and as a church body. The church is not to be spending its time fretting because we live in a time when the gospel is unpopular. Until Christ returns, the church is God's outpost in a world that hates God. The gospel will always have enemies. And the church will always face a certain amount of hostility especially the more so as it shares the gospel. One writer says, suffering is the stadium in which we run the race of faith. It's very helpful when we get a grasp of that big picture. The race of faith is not run on the beach of tranquility. It's run in the stadium of suffering. Once we grasp that, we can get on with the race in the midst of difficulty, instead of waiting for the day when all the difficulties go away. Well, it's one thing to keep going in the midst of hostility and opposition, but how on earth can we thank God in that context? We can thank him because we know he is at work in the midst of it. Look how Paul puts it at the end of verse 16. After describing those who are opposing the gospel, he says, in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Another way of translating this is to say, in this way, they fill up the measure of their sins. The sense here is that rather than taking God by surprise, these opponents of the gospel are actually proceeding down a course that God has already mapped out. God is not helpless in the face of their hostility. And he's not ignoring their rebellion. He's waiting. And someday he will say, that's it. The time has come for judgment. This language about people filling up the measure of their sin goes back to the early chapters of the Old Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God made a promise to Abraham. He promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. And when God made that promise, Abraham was living in Canaan. But God said to him, I'm not going to give you the land right away. 
No, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were the people living in Canaan at that time. And God says to Abraham, I'm not going to bring judgment on them now. I'm going to allow my enemies, the Amorites, to complete a certain amount of sin. Then when they are ripe for my judgment, when they have shown their hardened hostility to me, then I will bring judgment. Jesus used the same language against those who opposed him. He said to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, fill up the measure of the sin of your forefathers. In other words, he was saying, don't kid yourselves by imagining you're getting away with your sin and your oppression of God's people. You're not getting away with it. You're just filling up the measure of it. Here in our passage, Paul says it about the opponents of his day. The wrath of God has come upon them at last, he goes on to say. It's hard to understand precisely what Paul is saying here. It could be a prophetic statement. In that case, the sense would be, there is no doubt about it. You can count on it. The wrath of God will come upon these people. It will come as surely as if it had already happened. Or Paul may be saying the fact that they're hardened against the gospel, that's itself a foretaste of God's judgment. It's proof that one day they will receive his final judgment. Whichever understanding of that phrase is correct, the point of it is exactly the same. These believers need to understand that their suffering at the hands of hostile men is not a sign God has stopped working. No, even in this, God is working. He's working out his judgment and his wrath against his enemies. God does not always work in mercy. Judgment is also part of his work. He is a God who will not ignore sin. He's never going to turn around and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. I know that I said murder and rape and injustice and idolatry were evil. I know I said all that, but let's just forget about it, shall we? What kind of God would he be if that was his attitude to evil? No, God's judgment is coming on sin. And we will either feel the fire of it ourselves or we will escape the fire because we put our trust in the one who took it for us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Even when humanly speaking, things are not working. When we face suffering, when our service for God meets with hostility, when the good news about Jesus is thrown back in our face, even in all of that, when we can see the big picture, we can praise God. Because in all of it, he is working out his sovereign and good purposes. 
when he shows mercy to his people and when he brings wrath on his enemies, he is worthy of our continual praise. And one day, when Christ returns, we will stand together as his people and we will praise him together in his kingdom and his glory. We're going to close by singing, We Belong to the Day.